invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. If you're new here and you're not sure exactly where that is in the Bible, uh, it's a great Sunday to be here. Revelation is the very last book. It won't take you very fi- uh, very hard to find it. Uh, it's the last book of the Bible. If you'd like to follow along uh, in the Red Bibles, you can actually turn to page uh, 1029. We're continuing on in our study of the book of Revelation, and we are in the midst of these letters that Jesus wrote to various churches in the first century in the area that's referred to as Asia Minor, which today we refer to as Turkey. And today we come to the third letter, which is the church in Pergamum. So I'd invite you to listen as I read to you uh, chapter 2 of Revelation, verses 12 down through verse 17. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray as we do every week that you would be present with us and that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to not only see these words, but that we would understand them, that you would teach us wonderful things from them. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring conviction into our hearts and minds and that you would remind us of the wonderful, abundant grace that is ours through Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we recently passed the 75th anniversary of D-Day. June 6, 1944. But that was also the 75th anniversary of something else that took place on that same day, June 6, 1944. It was the day that a letter arrived to a young military cadet who was at West Point, the United States Military Academy. That letter was addressed to this young 20-year-old cadet by none other than General George Patton himself. Patton was in England training with the Third Army, of which he was the commander at the time, uh, readying themselves for the Allied invasion that was going to take place just after the D-Day invasion of Normandy. And Patton wrote to this young man at the military academy at, at West Point to encourage him because he knew that that young man in all likelihood would be called into service very soon. And he knew that that man and men like him would need courage. They would need 
strength they would need, encouragement to be strong in the face of an incredibly difficult future that faced them. So this is part of what Patton wrote to that young man. To be a successful soldier, you must know history. Read it objectively. Dates and even the minute details of tactics are useless. What you must know is how man reacts. You must read biographies and especially autobiographies. If you do, you will find that war is simple. Decide what will hurt the enemy most within the limits of your capabilities and then do it. Take calculated risks. That is quite different from being rash. My personal belief is that if you have a 50% chance, take it. Because the superior fighting qualities of American soldiers who have been trained and led by me will surely give you the extra 1% necessary to succeed. What success I have had results from the fact that I have always been certain that my military reactions were correct. Many people do not agree with me. They are wrong. <laughs> the unerring jury of history, written long after both of us are dead, will prove me correct. Now, I want you to put yourself in the place of that 20-year-old cadet who got that letter on that day from none other than General Patton. And can you imagine, as you're staring this, 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 this massive war and battle... Can you imagine how encouraging it must have been to that young cadet to get that personal letter from Patton telling him, go ahead, take calculated risks, even if it's only a 50% chance, because the soldiers that I've trained that will be by your side will give you that one extra percent chance that you will be successful. That's pretty encouraging, I would say. But can you imagine if you got a letter, not from Patton, encouraging you to be bold in the face of war and battle. But if you got a letter from none other than Jesus himself. And he wrote to you and he told you, there is every reason why you should be filled with hope and, and encouragement and strength. To know that the battle of this life will end for you successfully. That you will hear at the end of your life a commendation, well done my good and faithful servant. And the percentage chance that that will happen is not just 51%, but 100%. We have a letter like that, it's called the Bible. And in particular, we have a very specific letter that Jesus wrote to a church in Asia Minor. And today, this church in Pergamum that we're reading about in verses 12 through 17, get a letter from Jesus as he encourages them, as he warns them, as he instructs them, reach the finish line. He talks to them as those, each of the seven churches, and reminds them that those who conquer... Those who are faithful to the end will receive the greatest of rewards. So what does Jesus say to them and to us today to encourage and strengthen us to be faithful to the end? I want us to see three things quickly here in the passage. First is we need to see the life that Jesus commends. 
We also need to see the problem that Jesus condemns. And then lastly, let's look and see the motivation that Jesus provides. So first of all, the life that Jesus commends. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now we've looked at two letters already. The letter that was written to the church in Ephesus and the, le- the letter that was written to the church in Smyrna. And we've looked at both of those places and talked a little bit about those cities and acknowledged the fact that living in those two cities in the first century would have been very difficult for a Christian to live out the Christian faith faithfully. But I would suggest to you this morning that living in Pergamum in the first century was even worse. I mean, after all, what does Jesus say? This is the city where the throne of Satan is. It is the city where Satan himself dwells. That sounds pretty dark. Pergamum was a very significant city. One commentator that I was looking at this past week said that if if Ephesus as a city in the first century was the equivalent of New York City today, Pergamum in the first century was the equivalent of Washington, D.C. today. This was a significant city, probably about 120,000 people, not too far beyond what the city of Rochester is like. And it was the headquarters for the Roman government in Asia Minor. And therefore, that city was full of allegiance to the Roman Empire. It was strong, including the pressure for everybody in the culture to worship the Roman emperor. It was known for... As being a city of culture, it had a library that rivaled that of Alexandria, one of the greatest libraries in the world at that time. The library in Pergamum had over 200,000 volumes. The city was also famous for its architecture, not the least of which were many temples to pagan worship that were sprinkled around the city. One of those temples was... And one of the most significant temples was the temple to Asclepius. That's the Greek. He was the Greek god of medicine and healing. Interestingly, his symbol was one that you're probably familiar with. It is a staff with a serpent intertwined on it. You may see that symbol if you go downtown. It's the symbol of medicine that is still used today. People came from all over the world to Pergamum. To be to get medical treatment and to get medical medical healing. Sound familiar? And some believe that because of this focus on these various temples of pagan worship, that's why Jesus referred to this place as the place where Satan dwells. It also possibly could be because the temple of Zeus that was there was massive. It was towering above the city on the hillside. It was had a massive altar for pagan rituals. But whatever the reason for why Jesus refers to this city as the city where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells, the point is this, that it was a dark and evil place steeped in pagan idolatry and worship and incredible and intense pressure for all people to worship and give allegiance to Caesar. I want to stop just for a second and and ask you to appreciate the significance that God and his wisdom and his providence planted a little church there. It's a reminder to us that God is always at work building his church. Even in places that we look and we think there is nothing 
Christian in that place, don't underestimate the power of God to be at work there. This is another example that we have in the scriptures of the gates of hell never prevailing against God and His church. Now, even though it would have been very difficult for these Christians to live in Pergamum, they were doing some things well, and Jesus commends them for it. That's what we get in verse 13. He says, I know where you are. I know the city that you're in. I know the circumstances of your life. I know how difficult it is to live there. I know what you're enduring. And you have held fast to my name. You have not denied your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You did not shrink back from proclaiming faith in Christ and declaring the truth of God's word. They had not given in to pagan worship or the pressures of worshiping Caesar. And even when one of their own church members had been executed for his faith, Antipas, they still were faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. These were Christians who when confronted with the choice, deny the Lord Jesus Christ and live, or maintain your profession of Christ and die, they said, we choose death. Now, I think it should give us pause as we reflect on this life that Jesus commends, that if it comes to it, These people were willing to give up their life for Jesus' sake. It should give us pause for a moment to reflect on the fact that we have not had that kind of an experience in this country. We should give thanks to the Lord for not having us endure that kind of a hardship. But we do not know that it's always going to be that way. And so it's good for us to take some time and just reflect on the kind of commitment that was had here for these believers in Pergamum. What would we do if the culture in which we lived was more similar to that of Pergamum? And it should also cause us to pray fervently and frequently for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today who live in places like Pergamum. We should be reminded to pray for them often. So Jesus begins by giving them a commendation. He, he reminds them of what uh, life looks like and that is following him and faithful to him. And he commends them for that. But it is not a letter that is full of commendation. Because as soon as we get to verse 14, we see these dreaded words. But I have a few things against you. Now I want you to imagine that we were the church of Pergamum and this letter not from their pastor, but from Jesus, was being read in the, in the assembly. And when they got to that part, and they heard Jesus himself say, I've got some things against you, you can imagine that they might have started to squirm just a little bit. And he tells them, one of the problems is that you're tolerating false teaching. That's really the main accusation against them. He says in verse 14, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
In a lot of ways, what was happening in Pergamum is the opposite problem of what was happening in Ephesus. If you remember back a few weeks, we looked at that church in Ephesus and how that church in Ephesus was holding strongly and strictly to the biblical and theological truth of God's Word. They weren't wavering one bit from what the God's Word said. They were theologically precise, but they lacked love. It's the opposite problem here. In Pergamum, they were loving. They were accepting others, but they did it to the exclusion of holding to sound biblical truth. They were allowing those who held to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans to win people over to that error. They were willing to die for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if it got to that point. If it got to the point where they had to choose Christ or death, they would choose Christ. But up until that point, they were willing to tolerate false teaching and they were willing to compromise. So what Jesus was condemning here was their toleration of these false teachers. But it wasn't only the toleration of these false teachers. He's also condemning their compromise of their personal holiness. Now, he mentions the Nicolaitans, and they came up a little bit earlier in one of the other letters. And I mentioned to you then that we don't know a whole lot about them, uh, what they were teaching, what particular heresy or error that they were teaching. But, but it, it, they are lumped together with the, the people that were following the teachings of, of Balaam here. And it's probably the, what, what is being said here is that they were the same group of people. Uh, the word for Balaam and the word for Nicolaitans, one's in the Hebrew, one's in the Greek, but they actually mean the same thing and that is the conqueror of peoples so it's likely that he's speaking here about the same group of people though those who follow the teaching of Balaam and those who are called the Nicolaitans so what was the teaching of Balaam all about well you could go back in the Old Testament to Numbers chapter 22 and you could remind yourself of that story I would commend that to you for maybe this afternoon you could go back and read the story of Balaam in Balak. But let me just give you a quick summary. Balak was the king of Moab, which was the south uh, eastern part just over the Red Sea. And the king of Moab began to get concerned because Israel had left Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land and they began to come through the country of Moab. And as the king of Moab, Balak looked at this massive group of people Moving through his land, he began to become nervous that they might take over. And so he summoned a false prophet by the name of Balaam. And he told Balaam, what I want you to do is I want you to go out and I want you to curse these people so that they will not conquer this country and conquer me. Now Balaam, a false prophet, as we're told in the New Testament, told Balak... There are no guarantees. I can only say what God tells me to say. But Balak, the king of Moab, pressed on and wanted Balaam to do it. So four times Balaam was brought to curse Israel. And every single time that he opened his mouth, no curse came out, but a blessing for Israel. And Balak, the king of Moab, was furious, as you might imagine. He wanted them to be cursed. And instead, this, this Balaam prophet opened his mouth and began blessing the people of God. And Balaam said, I told you so. 
I told you that I can only speak that which God says. Later, Balaam, even though that plan didn't work, this all-out assault and cursing God's people didn't work, Balaam went back to, to Balak, the king of Moab, and said, that didn't work. I told you there was no guarantee. That didn't work. But here's another way that it might work. If we don't go in the front door, maybe we'll come in the side door. And so Balaam told him that what you need to do is to get the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men to intermarry and to join in pagan idolatry. And that worked perfectly. Israel gave in to sexual immorality and to pagan idolatry. And as a result, they were infected with plagues and many died. Eventually, Israel repented and the plague, plagues were listed, that, that were lifted. So, that's kind of the overview of the, the story of what was going on. And here Jesus is making reference to these people that were teaching the teaching of Balaam. So apparently, there were people in Pergamum, the Christians within the church, that were teaching that it was okay to compromise with the pagan culture that was around them. Such as... Eating food that was sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul had addressed that issue in 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. And what he said was, for Christians to eat later, to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols, was really inconsequential. It was just food. There was no power in itself. It was just food that might have been used earlier in the day or earlier in the week in some kind of pagan ritual. But later, if it's offered to you in the marketplace, it's not a problem for you to eat it. But what's going on here is something different. Here, what is being described is God's people within the church saying that it's okay if they participate in the meals that were connected to these pagan worship idolatry services. Maybe they weren't involved in the worship itself, but these meals that would take place in the context of that pagan worship were so closely connected to it that they were eating and accommodating and compromising with the culture in order to fit in, in order to get along, in order to have their life go easier. But it was even more blatant than that because we are also told that they were practicing sexual immorality. Probably also connected to the pagan worship, but it was likely broader than that. The word that is used here for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneo. It has a broad general sense of sexual immorality. It could have meant any number of ways that they were departing from the biblical sexual ethic. This is the problem that Jesus is condemning in the church in Pergamum. They were tolerating the false teaching of these people and they themselves were compromising their personal holiness by seeking to to fit in with the culture and doing things that the culture did that they shouldn't as God's people. Now, before we move on, I want us to think just for a moment, what are some ways today... That Christians are tempted to act in similar ways, to tolerate, to compromise, to accommodate unbiblical ways. Things that might be normal in our non-Christian culture that Christians are tempted to give in to so that they might fit in, so that they might have an easier life. And of course, because it's specifically mentioned in the first century context, but no less involved in our context, in our culture today, we have to reflect on all the issues related to sexuality. 
That's a huge issue today. How far we've come from 100 years ago, or 50 years ago, or even 25 years from ago. Today, almost anything goes. And now and in the future, there's going to be increasingly significant temptation for even God's people to compromise and to accommodate in order to be seen as okay in our culture. That's going to be true for us as individual Christians. It's going to be true for us as a church. It's going to be true for our denomination. And what we're being reminded here is that we must maintain the biblical sexual ethic that God has given to us in His Word. Yes, we are to do that in truth and love as we seek to love not only the Lord God Almighty and obey Him, but also to love our neighbors as ourselves. But we must not shrink back from what is the biblical sexual ethic. A whole other area that we are always tempted to, to give into or to compromise or to accommodate in is the abuse of things like alcohol or prescription medicine or even food. It's largely accepted and even celebrated in our culture today, those abuses of those things, as long as it doesn't cause a problem in us being a productive member of society. If you can continue to be productive and, and be uh, responsible in your, in, in your jobs and various things in your family, it's completely acceptable to abuse alcohol, prescription drugs, and even food. But the Bible's clear that the abuse of those things is wrong even before it causes problems in our lives. Whole other area where we are tempted to give in and accommodate to what the culture feels is okay is cultivating a, an attitude of self-righteousness, of self-promotion, and of pride. Those are things which are encouraged and celebrated within our culture. It, 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 I can imagine it is incredibly difficult to be successful in corporate America without self-promotion. Without highlighting yourself and talking about how great you are. But the Bible's ethic is the opposite of that in the sense of putting others before ourselves. Considering ourselves less than others. Being humble. Not being full of pride and arrogance. Or how about one that seems to seep into almost every aspect of our lives and that is having a consumer mindset. This idea that the primary purpose of life in my education, in my career, is to obtain financial security, financial stability and comfort, and to live the American dream for myself and for my family. Now, it's not wrong to have financial stability and to have financial security. Those are good things to have. But when those things become what drives us, and a successful career becomes more important in our lives than almost anything else, our family, our integrity, getting rest, having margin, then we're simply accommodating to what the culture seems as just normal. We also have to be vigilant against seeing a consumer mindset come within the church. There's a sense in which what we do on Sunday mornings ought to be weird in the culture. It ought to be different. It ought to look different. It ought to feel different. And, and when we try to accommodate to make it 
completely like the culture, we run the risk of losing our hold on objective truth and our doctrinal purity and reducing what we do to platitudes. Our worship should always stand out as being different and unusual and weird in this culture. And yes, we should go to great lengths to help people understand and to participate in what we're doing. But we must be vigilant against the consumer mindset in our own individual lives, but also in the life of our church. This is the problem that Jesus is condemning. That we must not tolerate false teaching within the church and not compromise personal holiness in our own lives. We must be very careful to recognize that we're being different from the culture. Now, thankfully, Jesus provides some motivation for why we should do all of this. Notice that he says at the beginning of verse 16, here's the answer. If you could be rightly accused of giving in to these false teachers and following some of these things, he says the antidote at the beginning of verse 16, therefore repent. There's the antidote. Repent, he says. Turn around and go the other way. Make a change in your life. No longer give in to that false teaching. No longer tolerate that false teaching. No longer compromise and accommodate your life to make it easier for yourself and the culture. But repent. And he says that if we... He gives us motivation because he, sa- he says if we don't repent, then several things, or at least one thing in particular will happen. He says, I'll come. Jesus will come and notice what he'll come with, both at the end of verse 12 and the end of verse 16. He talks about the sword of his mouth. Now that's probably a reference back to the story of Balaam, because when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, if you remember the story, as as Balaam was journeying on the donkey, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. Balaam didn't see him. He was standing in the road, but the angel had a sword in his hand. And it's also probably a reference to how Balaam was killed because we know he was killed by the sword. But here I think Jesus is also using this reference of this sharp two-edged sword because we are told in the scriptures, specifically in Hebrews, that that two-edged sword is the word of God. And what Jesus says is that when, when we participate in these things, when we tolerate and accommodate and, and compromise in these ways, he's going to come. And it says he will come to you, to us, God's people. Part of the motivation that Jesus gives us is that he will come and cleanse and purify us with the power of his word. He will not allow his people to continue to compromise their holiness and to tolerate false teaching within the church. He will come to us with the sword. And he's not talking about something that will happen that is pleasant. It's something that is painful and not enjoyable. It's what Hebrews refers to as the discipline of the Lord. That's part of our motivation. Is that Jesus promises that if we are people who are compromising and tolerating, He will not leave us alone to do that. He will come to us and bring His Word to bear on us. But I want you to notice there's also... Perhaps another motivation here in what he says, because he says, I will come to you. But notice what he says he will do. I will war against who? Against them. Who's he's talking about? He's talking about the false 
teachers and prophets that were the, the false teaching that was happening within the church. Here's possibly another, another motivation for us. Not only that Jesus will come to us and bring the power of his word to bear, to cleanse and to purify us. But part of our motivation is that if we don't follow the way we're supposed to be following, Jesus will come and bring war against them. Against the false teachers, against the unbelievers within their midst. In other words, I think part of what what Jesus is saying is that God's people should repent of their toleration and their compromise for the sake of them. For the sake of these unbelievers. That we should repent not only because we love Jesus, but also because we love our neighbors as ourselves. Because God may choose to use our repentance and our faithful obedience to open the eyes of unbelievers. That's the first motivation. But I would say that's not necessarily the most powerful one. Jesus gives them two symbols or two pictures here at the end as the most powerful motivation. He tells them that as they finish their lives, as they conquer, as they finish well... He says, I will give some of the hidden manna. He's referring back to the Old Testament, to God's people in the wilderness, as God provided supernatural food from heaven. It's a symbol. Manna is a symbol of God's provision, of God's goodness, of God's refreshment, of God's sustenance, of God's God's strengthening of His people. It's a symbol that points us forward to the bread that Jesus used at the Last Supper. As he showed his disciples that he was the ultimate manna that came from heaven. The ultimate bread of life. It's a symbol that points forward to what Jesus says is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That will be celebrated with God's people and Jesus in heaven that he himself says that he's waiting for. Manna coming to them is a symbol of the communion and fellowship that they have with the Father because of the life and death and resurrection of the Savior. And it's hidden because it won't be theirs until the second coming of Jesus. This is part of the motivation that he gives them. He says, think about this, God's people, in order to root out the false teaching and to lean against your temptation to compromise to personal holiness. Think about what God has done for you. Think of the fellowship that you have with the Lord. Think about how much He loves you. How He has provided for you, not only in the Lord Jesus Christ, but over and over and over again, keeping you faithful to the end. Why would you compromise? Why would you accommodate? Why would you look for something out there that can only be found through continued fellowship with your Father in Heaven? Remember the manna, He says. There's one last motivation that he gives, and it's in verse 17. It's an obscure reference here. He says, I will give not only the hidden manna, but I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, there are a lot of ideas out there, a lot of possibilities of what Jesus might be referring to. Some have thought that he was referring to the small white stone of honor that was given in athletic competitions to the champion. They would get a little white pebble that would be a recognition of the honor that they got when they became a champion in some athletic competition. Some believe that it was he was referring to a token that was given as admission to a party or to a banquet. 
some uh, believe that he's referring to uh, stones that were worn by the, uh, the, the high priest in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple as he represented the people of God and had the 12 stones in his breastplate as he went in to minister in the temple. All of those are possible. All of those are meaningful. But I think more likely what this is a reference to is the judicial court system and the vote of acquitting someone in the ancient culture. A judge would present two rocks or voting pebbles as they were referred to. One would be black and one would be white. And the verdict was given based on the color of those rocks. If you got the black rock, it meant that you were guilty. If you got the white rock, it meant that you were declared innocent and free. We actually see a reference to that in Acts chapter 20, uh, excuse me, 26, as Paul was speaking about how he used to uh, fight and, and uh, lean against Christians and how he would bring them to uh, various court systems. And, and this is what Paul says in Acts 26. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up, Many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put to death, Paul says, I cast my vote against them. And that little word there, cast my vote, is the exact same word that is Jesus used here for this white stone. It was that voting pebble. He would cast his voting pebble against the Christians so that they would be sent to their death. And do you see what is being said here? It's the exact same word. And he's saying that those who conquer, those who persevere through the, the help and the, uh, the hope of God himself, if they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are given the white stone that declares they are not guilty. And notice this stone has a new name written on it. And when we get to Romans chapter 14 verse 1, we will see a picture in the vision of John of God's people standing in heaven itself with the Lamb's name written on their forehead. Here is the greatest motivation that Jesus gives for why we ought to root out false teaching and stop compromising in our personal holiness. It is that we are Jesus' beloved that He has declared us not guilty. That He went to the cross and He took the black pebble of judgment for us. So that we are given the white pebble of innocence. We are declared forgiven and innocent forever. How can we compromise living our lives for the glory and honor of God why would we want to accommodate to a pagan culture around us to be more like it and less like the one who has given his life for us? The love of our Heavenly Father through our relationship with the Son is the greatest motivation possible for us. I didn't tell you how Patton finished his letter to that young cadet. How Patton signed the letter. At the end of the letter, this is how he signed it. Your affectionate father, Patton. The letter that he was writing was to his own son, George Jr., who was a 20-year-old cadet at West Point. And Patton knew that his son was in all likelihood going, going to be going to war. And he knew his son 
might be facing very difficult things and he wanted to encourage him and he wanted him to be brave and he wanted him to be strong. And so he wrote this letter to him and he finishes the letter with the most powerful motivation that he could give him. I am your loving Father. That's how Jesus ends his letter to his beloved in Pergamum. Repent, my beloved people, he says. Turn away from tolerating false teaching. Stop compromising in your personal holiness. Remember the fellowship that you have with me, the wedding supper of the Lamb that is awaiting us. Remember how I took on your guilty verdict and I got the black stone so that you could have the white stone declaring you innocent with my name tattooed on you. To the degree that this kind of love and grace grips our hearts, to that same degree, we should respond with loving and faithful obedience. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we're thankful that these letters were written down in such a way that we could have them today and trust them. And it's amazing how... Letters that were written so long ago to people so far away in a different culture uh, ring so true to us today. All of the ways that that we're so much like the people that we're reading about. And so I pray, Father, that as your people, as as people who have been redeemed and ransomed by Jesus Christ himself, we pray that you would fill us with the reminder of these wonderful promises that you have given to us. The the wonder of your grace and mercy and that as we meditate on that, that you would fill our hearts and our heads with the truth of it so that we would go out delighting to live in faithful and loving obedience to you this week ahead. Strengthen us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Gospel of Matthew, we, we are told that as Jesus and the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Much of what we said earlier about the sacrament of baptism that we celebrated earlier in our service applies to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as well. Participating in the Lord's Supper doesn't make you a Christian. There's nothing magical about these elements. They are bread that's gluten-free, and they are cups that are filled with the fruit of the vine, grape juice and wine, and they remain as such as we take them. But as we come as God's people, believing and trusting and putting our faith in Christ, we are told that God is at work through His Holy Spirit to bless and to strengthen and to encourage and to help us. So faith in Christ is what qualifies you to come to the table. Even a weak faith. Even a faith that wavers. A faith that is clinging to Christ is strong enough. This table is not for those who don't sin. Because then nobody could come. This is a table for sinners who are looking to Christ. 
who are trusting in Christ. And so if that's you this morning and you've made a public profession of your faith in Christ and connected yourself to His church, whether Trinity or another church that believes the the Bible is God's Word and salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, then eat and drink and be reminded of what these things point us to, Christ's body and blood given for us. And know that as we come in faith, the Holy Spirit will be at work strengthening and helping us so that we might be prepared to live this week ahead. Let's pause and thank Him for giving us this table. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the Lord's Supper. We thank You for this means of grace. What a blessing it is to celebrate both of the means of grace in one service. And as we close our service celebrating the Lord's Supper, we pray that You would remind us once again of Your beauty and Your glory and how good it is to have faith in You. And we pray that as You fill us up, with your word, as you fill us up with your grace, that you would help us to be satisfied with it to such a degree that we would go out and we would lean against the temptation to tolerate and to compromise and to accommodate. Would you do this for your glory and for the good of your people? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.